allow your word to feed us. We pray that you'll make our hearts like that soft, that good soil. The word like good seed goes in deeply and bears lots and lots and lots of fruit. Would you bear fruit in the marriages of Cornerstone Church today and in the future marriages of Cornerstone Church today? Would you lead some people to saving faith in Christ because maybe they get convicted by how they have sinned and failed in marriage today. They get convicted about that today and they turn and call on the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and life. So speak to us through your word. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so usually I wanna go straight to the text. I usually don't even have a sermon introduction. I usually just start in the text. Because anytime I'm talking about anything else, like if I open with a story acting like I need to get your attention, I think I already have your attention. So I don't usually wanna start with a story because any time spent telling a story is time spent not opening up the text. I realize stories can help shed light on the text. There's, there's use for them, but not a big use maybe. Here's what I'm supposed to be doing. You wanna know what I'm supposed to be doing as a pastor on Sundays? I don't get to make this up, what I'm supposed to be doing. The word tells me, here's what you're supposed to do. Christ is head of the church. He's the one who dictates how it's supposed to operate. How should pastors spend your time and our time in sermons? Well, there's a number of texts I could open up, but I love this one. I just again and again and again and again have this one in my mind and in front of me down through many years of ministry. It's 1 Timothy 4.13, it's not up there, just listen. Paul writes to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, dot, dot, dot. Do not neglect, dot, dot, dot. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, dot, dot, dot. Persist in this. That's powerful stuff. And there he's speaking directly to pastors and he's basically saying, don't waste their time. Do what Jesus Christ, the head of the church, wants you to do. When they gather together, there's three things I'm holding you accountable for. One is read the text. We ought to be reading some scripture when we gather. Number two is explain the doctrine or the teaching in the text. Number three is apply the text. That's the exhorting part. That's what we're supposed to do week in, week out, till Jesus comes. So ordinarily, I want to get right to that. I'm, I'm saying this in part for those of you who are here for your first time and you're looking for a church where they get into the word and today I'm not going to get right into the word and you're going to go, forget that, I'm out of here. Now give us a chance, come back another Sunday, we'll get, get you right in. We don't want it to be here as it was described in the days of the Old Testament prophet Amos, chapter eight and verse one, God is speaking and he says, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine 
not of food or of water, but of famine, of hearing the words of the Lord. That's the worst kind of famine. When nobody's preaching the word, that's a famine that's devastating to people spiritually. And yet God says, it's going to be a judgment I'm delivering to you, my people, because of the way you've hardened your hearts and all. I'm going to send a famine. There won't be preachers. The preachers that are there won't open up the word. They'll talk about nice little stories. And maybe there'll be a famine of listeners, too. You know, when Paul says the days are coming when having itching ears, they'll heap up teachers for themselves who will tickle right there. So I'm... I'm I'm really not a curmudgeon-y kind of person. I'm actually a very happy kind of person. But when I look around, I think there's a lot of famine and not much like get us into the word, pastor. So that, now I'm going to be a curmudgeon. For, you want to see grumpy Steve? Here, here's a glimpse into grumpy Steve. Um, if I visit your church online, and I do that all the time, lo local churches, area churches, international churches, um, and, and if we're 20 minutes into the sermon, which is only going to be 30 minutes anyway, you could call it a sermonette for Christianettes. I'm being grumpy, Steve. And you're 20 minutes into the sermon, and we haven't bumped in to the Word of God yet? I'm grumpy. I'm not happy. But we haven't gotten to our passage yet. And now I'm going to tell a story. All that was just... <laughs> All that was to explain why normally we don't want to do this. But now I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you a story. It relates to our passage. So back in September of 1974, I first laid eyes on Debbie. Who was right? I was a junior at Washington Bible College. She was coming in as a freshman at Washington Bible College. And I saw her and thought, I want to meet that girl. And it's possible that that following Friday night we had a date, or at, I know it's at least by the next Friday night we had our first date. It went good. I could tell there was hope. Well, fast forward a little bit. So we get to December of that year, and we're definitely really liking each other. It's getting strong already. We're liking each other. She's from Lexington, Virginia, down in the Shenandoah Valley, beautiful town. She's raised on a farm down there. And uh, she needed a ride home for Christmas break. So I'll, I'll give you a ride home. So I got to drive her all the way down there. Then I got to meet her mom. Her, her dad had passed away many years before when she was eight. But there's her mom. I met her mom. And then after Christmas break, I got to drive down there and pick her up. Actually, I was home alone up in Westminster. And I must have been so gloomy and depressive, which I never am. And my dad said, go pick that girl up, would you? Like, get out of here. So I went down and picked her up. So I got to be around her mom twice, dropping her off, picking her up. I was around her mom. And I could feel it that her mom did not like me. It was very, it was cold. It was not relational. 
Come to find out a little bit later, it was because there were at least these several reasons. Maybe there are more. But I know this was one of them. It's because from her perception, now you got to keep in mind when she was born and where she was born, she, she viewed me as a Yankee. It was, what are you doing dating a Yankee? That was part of it. The other part was, I was not Robert, Debbie's high school boyfriend of a number of years, and Debbie's mother wanted Debbie to marry Robert. And in many ways, he was a great guy. He just didn't seem to be a real Christian. That was the death knell for Robert. That's why Steve won. She was like, Christian, not Christian. I'm going with Christian. But he was a very fine guy. He's a very smart guy. He went to Virginia, Virginia Military Institute, graduated very well, became an officer in the Navy, worked on nuclear subs for his career. If we fast forward a few years for a second, he actually came to visit Debbie and me in our apartment in Lanham, Maryland, when she was this big with our first. So that was kind of weird. But her mom didn't like me because I was a Yankee and because I wasn't Robert. And down through the years, I felt like she never did warm up to me. All right, fast forward to a few years ago. She came to live with us because she had dementia and shouldn't be living alone anymore. And she lived with us for two years and eight months, and then she passed away in our front room. She was an adorable sweetheart of a woman. She really was. But here's, here's why I'm telling you about all this. So when she had her dementia and came to live with us, she didn't know who I was. I believe she thought I was like an orderly in this place or I'm a nurse or something. No, really. I tried to explain to her early on, you know, I'm your daughter's, because she knew who Debbie was at first. I'm your daughter's husband. It never went in. And here's the thing, not knowing who I am, she loved me. I'm not kidding. It's like, she thought I was the bomb. She wanted a man in her life, and I was the man in her life. And I would go in there and schmooze her and make her happy and take her a cookie and turn on I Love Lucy, and she'd say, thank you. Sometimes it kind of felt like, it, talk about weird. This was weird. Sometimes it felt like she was kind of flirting with me like I'm a boyfriend. And I wouldn't say, Alice, I'm married to your daughter. <laughs> so I told all of that to get to this point, which is going to get me to another point. Um, <laughs> so sometimes when people are getting to know us, Debbie and me, I tell them that story, and, and then I tell them, here's my punchline. So all you need in order to be able to like me is a little bit of dementia. However, you don't need that. Debbie and I have been married now 47 years and a couple of months. If you go back to when we first met, it's been 48 years and three months. 48 years and three months, I've loved this woman and she loved me. And I've liked this woman and she's liked me. So I'm telling you that to tell you there is hope. Because she's a sinner and I'm a sinner. She's got issues and I got issues, and yet it's been good 47 years. We've been blessed. 
We have an unfair advantage, and it's this. When we take a personality test, we're the same. There's not a lot of variance. We're, we're very much alike. So we see things alike, and we feel about things alike, and we think alike, and so on and so forth. Plus, you know, Jesus Christ is first for her, and has been since I met her, and Jesus Christ is first for me. So there's a whole lot in that. But you can have God, God's glory in your marriage. God can be glorified in your marriage. It can happen. That's why Paul's written what he's written here in this portion of the word. He's telling us, here's how to make that happen. That's very simple. Here's how to do that. It can happen. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, like being married. Do all to the glory of God. So you want to do marriage to the glory of God. I want to be a husband to the glory of God. Debbie wants to be a wife to the glory of God. And it's also for the good and the blessing and the joy of people, of your wife, of your kids, of your church, of your nation, we want marriages that glorify God and bless people. And that's why Paul's writing what he's writing. Do we need to hear about marriages in our day? So this goes to that now. So one of my favorite theologians still living, he's, he's just retired. Uh, he was a distinguished professor, brilliant man his entire life. I love everything he writes. And he's written a lot. His name is John Frame. I've mentioned him here before, right? My favorite living theologian, John Frame. In 2008, he wrote a massive book. It's 1,069 pages. He wrote a massive book called The Doctrine of the Christian Life. It's really a study in the Ten Commandments. And when he gets to the commandment that has to do with family, he wrote this section. Quote, oh, let me just say too, he's not a man given to exaggerations. Maybe, the, maybe you'll see some exaggeration. I'm undecided. But here's his end of his career almost, reasonable assessment of the state of Christian families in our day. He writes, quote, there is no more important need in our churches than for ministry to families. And then this, is this an exaggeration? I don't know. Most people in our churches have no idea what the biblical family is to be like because they have been inundated with modern anti-Christian ideology about the family. He wrote this back in 2008. What would he write now? He goes on. They need to be taught about authority relationships, gender-differentiated tasks, and the need to create an atmosphere that saturates children with the Word of God. And then he puts in parens, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know, we're here... Hear, O Israel, the Lord is, the Lord is, 
Yeah, there's more in there. Anyway, yes, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all your heart and soul and mind strength. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And then it's when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk, and so on and so forth. Saturated, the atmosphere saturated and saturates children with the word of God. All that to say, frame says, we need to spend time on the Christian family. So that's what we're doing. Now, are you ready for the text? <laughs> Thank you for your patience today. We've already looked at the part to Christian wives, and we are now in the part to Christian husbands. Let me just read it and kind of give you the lay of the land for a minute here. So, and I'll remind you if you don't know, I'll tell you if you don't know, this is, this is part two. You might want to get last week's. The basic command is love. The word love is actually used six times in the passage we read to open this sermon. Two of those are about Christ, loves the church, loves the church. The other four are directed to husbands. They're commands to husbands. What is the basic command to husbands, Paul? Paul says, here it is, love your wife. You wanna know what's second? Love your wife. Third, love your wife. Fourth, love your wife. So that's very clear, isn't it? Paul, I wish you'd make it clear. Well, he did. And looking at the text again, can you put it up for us, please? Slide man, thank you. Husbands, love your wives, and then we get a model. Then we get an example. What would that look like if I love my wife? Here's what it will look like. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. So I have a model. I have a picture, I have an example. I can look to and see what, what this looks like. Well, what do we see when Christ loved the church? He picks out this thing. This is for you husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the thing Paul selects out of everything Christ ever did. In the model he selects, Jesus Christ, and he says, husbands, here's the thing you need to get. You're to love her, love her, love her, love her. Do it like Jesus did. Which part about Jesus? You know, the part where he gave himself up for her. So that's, that's a pretty high bar. That's, that's a pretty amazing example of what it means to be a husband. Then he gives us three parallel purpose clauses. There's a reason. Why, why are you to love her and give yourself up for her? Verse 26. Well, here's why Christ did. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. That he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Launderer's terms. That she might be holy and without blemish. So here's the command. Love, 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 love your wife. Here's what it'll look like. It's going to look like Christ loving the church. What part of Christ loving the church? The part where he gave himself up for her at Calvary on the cross. And why did he do that? And why should I love my wife? That she might become holy. So it's not what you think. It's not love her so she'll be happy. Well, I hope that works too. If not, love her so she'll be well provided for. Well, I hope she'll be well provided. That's your job. 
love, protect, and provide. But it's not that. It's that you might sanctify her. The main thing, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just giving you an overview here. The main thing you want for your wife, the most important thing you want for your wife is that she would know Jesus Christ, love him deeply, and follow him faithfully. That's more important than buying her a new dress. I'm not saying don't buy her a new dress, but that's way more important. That's way more important than did you wash her car? That's way more important than did you provide a nice home? You want her to be holy. And so you're, you have goals and you're doing things as head of the household. Here's how I'm going to bring her closer to Christ. Here are the things we're going to do as a family that will bring her closer to Christ. By the way, one of the chief things there is I want her in church, sitting under God's word, worshiping with God's people, because that's one of the main spigots, the means of grace, that God intends to make his people holy. I want my wife in church, man, and other places where she gets the means of grace. So, all right. That's a kind of overview. Now, let's jump into some of what we've seen already, and then we'll go on to some stuff we're going to see more of. So, reviewing. Sorry, man, this sermon is a weird sermon. Are you all? You look like you're with me. You okay? All right. So, we've already seen, in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. We've already seen, next slide, that hierarchy in marriage doesn't look like hierarchy in the military or business or government or church. It doesn't look like parents with children. When when God tells the wife to hupatasso, rank yourself under him and recognize he has a higher rank than you do in the family. And when the husband recognizes, hey, God's appointed me as head. That means the one who has authority and responsibility to make sure it's good. Um, when you recognize that there's a hierarchy there, don't think. It's not like it's, it's a hierarchy, just like there's hierarchy in military, police, whatever but it doesn't operate like any of those. In marriage, it operates, it oozes with love, right? And furthermore, in the kingdom of God and so in the family, there is a transformation in the exercise of authority. Jesus teaches us, oh, you want authority, huh? Well, let me tell you, the one who is first must be last. Hmm. And whoever wants to be greatest must be servant of all. Hmm. Hmm. Things are topsy-turvy in the kingdom of God. And furthermore, then we got to the command, husbands are commanded. I want you to note again, commanded. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. I preached about that a little bit last week. We're just reviewing it now, but I can't resist. I'm going to preach about that one a little bit more. Do you mind if I preach on a point that I'm reviewing? It's a terrible sermon. All right. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. The point here is you can command... Love. Just want to make that point again. You can command love. Well, the Bible commands us to love God, doesn't it? So if I don't love God, well, I'm sinning every second of my life that I don't love him. I'm failing to obey the most important commandment in the universe. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Well, if I'm an individual who doesn't do that, and then the command comes to me, you're supposed to love me, start. <laughs> and I'm supposed, I can be commanded to love. I can be commanded to love God. I can be commanded to love a neighbor. Second most important commandment. I can be commanded to love a wife, and I can apply that command. 
Not only can love be commanded, it can be taught and it can be learned. That's why in Titus chapter 2, Paul says the older women of the church, hey, I have a job for you. Your job is to teach the younger women to love their husbands. We, we are blessed with such a deposit of godly women who have loved their husbands for many years. I can show you how, honey. They're like, you know how there are national treasures, like the Grand Canyon's national treasure. There are church treasures. One treasure in a church is some godly older women who can put their arm around you and say, let me show you how to love that man. We are blessed with such treasures. So it can be commanded. Here's another way we know it can be commanded. I don't know if you know this. I believe this is true. It's estimated that over half of the marriages worldwide right now were arranged marriages. Which just seems insane to us, doesn't it? Half of them. Half of them arranged. So in some of those cases, you never even met her till the day of your wedding. They fixed it all up, and then it's like, okay, uh, I'm Steve. Debbie, nice to meet you. You're going to be my wife today. And they get married, and then they learn to love each other. Half the marriages on the planet didn't even get to pick. Love him. So love is commanded and can be taught and can be learned. And God commands our loves. He is Lord of our hearts. He's interested in our loves. We get new loves when we get new hearts. We love with new passion when we get new hearts, when we turn to the Lord Jesus. Next point. Paul presents two models for a husband loving his wife. One is Christ, and the other one is, you know, the way you love your own body. Now we're looking at Christ. Here's a new point. You're finally into new material. Put this next slide up, please, oh, slide man. Like Christ, the husband most manifests his love by giving himself up for her. That's Paul's catch-all. Everything else you want to say to a husband fits under that. Here's the verse. Husbands, next slide, thank you. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is what a godly husband is to do. I, I love her. Well, what's, how, what's that going to look like? How is that going to be shown? And I'm going to give myself up for her. It's not love her and give her things. I hope you give her some things. Buy her a new dress. Nothing wrong with that. Get her some earrings. I got Debbie some earrings recently. I love her in them. But it's not that. It's not get her things. It's give her you. It's give yourself up for her, like Christ did on the cross. He gave himself up for us, for sinners. Some related passages, John chapter 10. The good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. So does the good husband for his wife. John 15, there is no greater love than when a man lays down his life for a friend. Mark 10, 45, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom on behalf of many. That's what Christ did. He loved and he gave himself up. And that's our model. Biblical husbands, you, you love her, and so you give yourself up for her, by the way. So this is a good reason to get married. There are lesser reasons, but this is a good reason to get married. I want to marry her so I can give myself up for her till Jesus comes. As opposed to, I want to marry her because I'll get, and I'll get, and I'll get, and I'll get, and it's for me, and it's for me, and what I'm going to get, and what I want, because then when you don't get those things the way you wanted, you get all grumpy about it. But if you're marrying her like Christ is marrying his church, he married his church to give. It started off with, I'm giving myself up for you. And that's, a, that's the best reason to get married is, I love her and I want to give myself for her till Jesus comes. So it's not love and demand things of her, it's give. It's not love and make her your servant, it's give. It's not love and bark out orders, no. It's like Christ, you love and you give yourself up for her. This is Biblical Husbands 101. Give yourself up. Now, I want to help you avoid a wrong application of that. So here's a possible way you might do an end run around that, really. So you might say, oh, absolutely. I would take a bullet for her. We're on the Titanic. I would put her in the lifeboat, and I'd freeze to death for her. I'd shove her, though it leaves me in front of the oncoming train for her. Yeah, those are all very nice. They're all imaginary. <laughs> like, they're probably never going to happen. So if you're sitting around waiting, like, yeah, well, when the bullet comes, I'll take it, man. And in the meantime, your life and your marriage is all about you and you and you and I want and me. You're not loving her as Christ loved the church. It's not about waiting for the imaginary bullet. It's about every single day in a thousand ways you give yourself up for her. All kinds of ways, little ways, like maybe it's Tuesday and you had to work late and it's been a long day and you're tired and there was traffic and you come home and you just want to plop down in your chair. But she says, honey, can you help me with, or can we talk? That's, that one's dreaded. Right? Oh, man. Like, that's the last thing you wanted to do. But you give yourself up for her in thousands of little ways. Give you a glimpse into our marriage here. So here's how it used to be, and then I'll tell you how it is. It used to be, so I, the way I'm wired, I'm always into something. I'm really into something. Like, and I don't want to be distracted or bothered by something else because I'm really into something. And Debbie would say, 
sure would be nice if, if the garage door could be fixed. Just made that up. And I'd be like, yeah, I'll get to that someday. And I really didn't want to get to it. And it might be days, it might be weeks before I would get to it. That wasn't love. That wasn't giving myself up for her. That was loving me and doing what I want to do. I'm a changed man. I don't know what did it, but it dawned on me that, you know what? It would be better if any time she even hints, and she's good at just hinting. So it's not really a request. It's just a hint. It would be nice if. I'm like, I'm on it right now. Doesn't matter what I'm all into. I'm on it because I want her to feel that loved. It's giving yourself up for her as head, as the assigned responsible party to lead this thing called a family into beauty and joy. And that might be a lot of hard work and difficult conversations, but you give yourself up for her and make make a path so the marriage can become good to the glory of God and the blessing of people. So don't wait for the don't wait for the bullet. Get busy today giving yourself up for her. Now, a caution on this. So Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you want to be first, you should be servant of all. So here's a, here's a ditch you can fall into with that. You don't want to fall into, but Christians are falling into it. Here's a way of applying that that some Christians are applying, and I don't think it's the right way to apply it. So in some cases, what you do is this. So you get, you get two ladies. Let's make it Debbie, my wife, and Janet right over there. And you, you ladies are out having coffee at Panera. And, um, and you, you get to talking about your husbands. Be careful when you do that, by the way. But anyway, you, you, get, to, you get to talking because you're supposed to honor your husband. So you get to talking about your husbands, and Debbie says to you, uh, Steve's a leader, but wink, wink, he's a servant leader. All right, that sounds good, but often here's what that really means. He's my doer. Like every day I hand him a list and he does those things. He's a servant leader. Sounds to me like he's a servant, not a leader. So just becoming your wife's servant, and she's very happy because you just do whatever she asks you to do, and you're serving and serving, and serving, isn't fulfilling everything required by the text. You're also the responsible party to lead this whole thing to green pastures and still waters. You're also to lead your marriage into health so that your marriage can be on the mission which is the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise responsible dominion over your piece of land and your piece of work. And so your family can be healthy to fulfill the great commission, which is make disciples of all nations, baptize, teach them to do everything I've commanded. And you want your family to be healthy so it can be on those missions and you lead to that health and you lead to those missions. It's not just about, well, I do whatever she puts on the to-do list. Maybe you should do whatever she puts on it. I basically do. Whatever she says, I'd like this done, I'm right on it. She likes that. I like it too. I like her liking things. So this doesn't cancel out headship, a vision for your family, where I need to lead this group, 
under this roof. This doesn't cancel out, I need to lead my family to be healthy and I need to lead my family on mission, on God's mission. No, this, this doesn't, you haven't fulfilled this if you're just her doer. You're still also her leader, the family's leader heading for health and mission and purpose. There's a verse in the Old Testament that kind of sets this up for me a little bit. It's Psalm 78. Oh, man, I've been talking longer. And see, I'm in trouble. I have to keep this message synced with the earlier one. They have to end at the same place. (laughs) Psalm 78, verse 72. Here it is. So he, David, shepherded them, Israel, according to the integrity of his heart. I love that and guided them with his skillful hands. Beautiful verse for a pastor. You you, want to be that. High bar. Lord, help me. I want to be that. Good verse for a husband. What are you doing as a husband? You're shepherding that family with integrity of heart. You're guiding with skillful hands. So the family's healthy and everyone's blessed and God is glorified and the mission is accomplished. Your family depends on your skillful hands. Now, what's next for us in the text is the purpose clauses. That he might sanctify, that he might present the church to himself, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what we would come to next. But I want to linger a little longer on how Christ loves the church, and so how husbands love their wives. Just a couple of points here. Like Christ, let's put this slide up, please. Like Christ, the husband loves his wife unconditionally. It's not like you marry her, and then you discover, well, she's a sinner, I wasn't expecting that. You weren't. There isn't any other kind. They're all sinners. If you find one that's not a sinner, don't marry her. You'll really mess it up. So it's not like, oh, she's got issues. Well, of course so. They all do and you do. We all do. It's not a question of am I marrying a sinner. It's a question of which sins am I marrying But when I discover her unique brand of fallenness, (laughs) I'm to love her unconditionally. I don't say, oh, well, I didn't know about that. Sorry, deal's off. Now, there are in the Bible, I want to say footnote, there are are two reasons in the Bible where the deal might be off. So I, I remember those. The Lord Jesus for fornication. That could be a deal breaker. The Apostle Paul unbelieving spouse, can't stand your Christianity anymore, and they depart, let them depart, you're not in bondage. Two biblically legitimate reasons why it might dissolve. Otherwise, you are unconditionally committed to loving that woman till death do us part. (laughs) Speaking of that, here I have a copy of the standard vows that people take. I could almost wish Every wedding had, that you ever go to had the exact same vows, so we're made to repeat the vows we made when we hear them make their vows. That'd be kind of cool. But here's, here's something you say about the, how unconditional this is going to be now, Debbie, when I'm marrying you here. I, Steve, take thee, Debbie, to be my wedded wife, 
to have and to hold from this day forward. Now, for better or for worse, we won't end this thing in the worst times. It's unconditional. There's no condition of worse that will end this. For richer or for poorer, poor won't end this thing. In sickness and in health. Sickness is not a condition I hadn't thought about. Ooh, that changes it now. There's sickness. No, it's unconditional. To love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge thee my faith. Wasn't the older word, I pledge thee my troth? Word for faith. So the, the husband who loves his wife as Christ loves the church, doesn't say, honey, if you can just change these three things, I'll love you again. No, he loves her unconditionally till death do us part. He also loves her intensely. Let's look at this one, and then we'll be done for today. Like Christ, the husband loves his wife intensely. Well, didn't, doesn't Christ love us intensely? Is his, light, is his love slight? Is, is his love weak? No, listen to how it's described in John chapter 13 and verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, that, that translation isn't the greatest. It's the Greek words, ace telos, unto the uttermost. What it means is this, as far as love can possibly go, that's how far he loved them. You can't love with more love than he did. He loved them completely. He loved them entirely. He loved them Unto the end, astelos. And we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Does, does your wife know, does she feel in a thousand ways every day that you love her as Christ loved the church? Thank you for staying with me in that somewhat meandering journey today. Husbands, do we need grace or what? You thankful for the cross? For the, for the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all our transgressions, our failures, our sins, our weaknesses as husbands? And Christ says, I forgive, I forgive, I forgive. And he loves us with an everlasting love. It's amazing. And some of you might be, actually, I'll, I'll just tell you, I won't name anybody, but after the first service, a man talked to me. He made a mess of his marriage. It ended in divorce. And I approached him and said, hey brother, I bet this was hard for you, wasn't it? He said, yeah, it gave me a lot to think about. And I told him, you know where to go, don't you just take it, take it all the cross. I already did. Some of you may, might be like him. It's bringing back old feelings, things experienced, bad, hard times. Yeah, I understand. I also remember that if we are faithful to confess our sins, sorry, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
want to remind you again, I'm using this one too often. Need to pick a new one that I'm going to use all the time. There is a fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. What's the hymn writer say? Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So I would imagine every husband in the room has some going to the foot of the cross again to do. Let's do it together now. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. May it instruct us, shape us, form us, that we would live to your glory and to the blessing of never dying, everlasting souls. Please may your word be powerful to save some people today as they become aware of their sins and their need for Christ. Would you draw them to the cross where they may repent and believe in the Lamb of God? We pray, our Father, that you will strengthen, that you will bless the marriages of Cornerstone Church. We pray, O oh Lord, that you will give wisdom and grace and humility and love to husbands and wives of this church. We have many sins to confess to you. Together we do. Many failures, much brokenness, but not just those things, sins, violations of your law. Thank you that in Christ, you bury them all in the depths of the sea. You remove them from us as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, O gracious heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen.